Well, good morning, church. Hope you're all doing well. It's great to be with you all today. Um, I'm, as you can see, I'm not Alan, and I'm not Doug Plumley. I'm not Chris Frakes or Ryan McBride or Mark Caldwell, though I strive to be like all those people because those are some amazing people. Uh, but my name is Noah Bartley, and uh, I am actually one of the ministry residents in the uh, college ministry. And one of the wonderful opportunities that Alan and the pastoral staff have given me is to preach once a semester. Uh, something that I, I love to do. Uh, I, love, I love teaching and preaching God's word, but I love it even more when it's people, I'm preaching the people who I love as well. So thank you all for this wonder, wonderful opportunity. Um, but uh, I can't help but think that Alan kind of arranged this day for me to preach so that he could just watch March Madness all week, no, no remorse, no shame, and hopefully see Tennessee win an SEC tournament tonight. So go Vols, first of all. I like that. Amen. Um, so if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans 15, 14 through 33. Romans 15, 14 through 33. And uh, if, if you've been with us, you'll know um, that we've been in Romans for a long time. Um, and, and now we're at this stage of Romans where Paul is starting to wrap up his letter. Um, we've, we've honestly traversed through some really intense theological terrain. Um, if you think back, way back to chapters 1 through 11, we're basically dealing with our utter sinfulness, God's holiness and our reconciliation with God that is made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. That, that's kind of a, a very quick one-sentence summary of chapters 1 through 11. And uh, in chapters 12 through 15, or at least half of 15, we got to see how God's righteousness and His Spirit compels us to live in holiness and unity. That, that the Holy Spirit in us is compelling us to live a life of godliness. And now we are actually turning to kind of the concluding remarks of Paul's letter. Um, so just a reminder, since we've been in Romans for a while, it can be easy to forget the context. Uh, so the context is that Paul is on his third missionary journey at this point. And more than likely, he is in the region of Achaia, specifically in the region of Corinth, or in the city of Corinth, writing this letter. Um, uh, he's in Corinth with the church that he loves and has, has planted and grown. Um, and we're actually going to look more at this little region a little later. Uh, but in our passage today, we're going to see a couple things. We're going to see how Paul views his ministry to the Gentiles. This, this divinely ordained ministry that God has called him to. And specifically, we're going to see why he ministers. We're going to see how he ministers and also how he is able to continue to minister and share the gospel. In other words, we're going to see Paul's heart as a minister of the gospel of God, as our title suggests, the heart of a minister. So Romans is written while Paul is on mission. Okay? It's written while Paul is on mission, and one commentator writes the following. I think this is really helpful. Romans is written from the missional trenches. 
And we should never think of it as purely containing doctrine devoid of mission. The book of Romans is written from the front lines of mission. And especially in in chapter 15, verses 14 through 33, we're going to see kind of how Paul fleshes out his mission, how he views his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, So before we read our, our passage today, I'd like to pray real quick. So let's pray. Uh, Father, I I thank you for this day and and for this congregation um, and for the ability uh, to gather together. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, get me out of the way of your message, um, that that whatever I speak be of you and from you. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts to hear the word being preached, and whatever is not of you, Lord, I pray that it falls on deaf ears. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and read Romans, 5, uh, Romans 15, 14 through 21. So we're only going to take the first half of our passage today right now. Let's read Romans 15, 14 through 21. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not speak to venture, or I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So the main idea for today that I want you to really lock in on and walk away with is this, is that God graciously saves and empowers us to be ministers of the gospel where God plants us with the resources God gives us. I'm going to read read that again. God graciously saves and empowers us to be ministers of the gospel where God plants us with the resources God gives us gives us. And how we're going to see that fleshed out is really in four ways. And I'd like to think of this as kind of four sides of the diamond of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in our text today. So the first side of this diamond that we see is this, is that Paul's ministry is characterized by God's grace. His ministry is characterized by God's grace. And we can see this in verses 14 through 16. He writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, 
because of the grace given me by God. So first, Paul wants to kind of clear the air to the Romans. He, he, he wants to make it clear that what he has written boldly to this point to them was not because they were spiritually immature or in need of any type of rebuke. Paul's intentions with this letter was exhortation. He wasn't trying to rebuke or correct them, but he, he is writing this, especially now, to affirm their spiritual maturity. So though Paul had never... He didn't plant this church, and he had never even visited this church up until this point. He had heard of their maturity in Christ. And this maturity, Paul describes as full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So first and foremost, he clears the air, and and he says, you are spiritually mature in Christ, and you are growing in maturity. But then he kind of turns, and he gives the grounds as to why he can write to them in the first place. Look at verse 15 again. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. He gives the grounds, and the grounds that he can write boldly to them is because he has been given grace by God. So what this shows us is that Paul is called and commissioned or called and sent out by the grace of God. And some of my uh, favorite stories and, and books include um, this most unlikely of a candidate to do some insurmountable task. That in the eyes of the world, they look at this character and they're thinking, there, there's no way that you can do the task ahead of you. And, and something inside of us, I think, as humans, we love to see that type of underdog, that the unthinkable do the seemingly impossible. And I would say that Frodo Baggins from Lord of the Rings is this type of person. I love it, Anthony. I love it. That he is this type of person. If you, if you know Lord of the Rings, um, you know that Frodo and, and hobbits in general are these simple, living, quiet, peaceful people who lived in a place called the Shire. Um, they lived in these nice, comfortable little hobbit holes. They didn't like going on big, crazy adventures or anything like that. But Frodo, Frodo Baggins, ends up becoming the one to take on this humongous, insurmountable task of taking the ring of power to be destroyed in in the fires of Mount Doom where it was created. For little Frodo Baggins, who would have ever thought he would be the one to carry the ring, the ring of power that binds its wearers in darkness to be destroyed, that he would trek thousands of miles across this insanely dangerous terrain to go under Sauron's nose and destroy the ring. So Frodo seemed to be the most unlikely candidate for such a task. And I think we actually see a similar situation with Paul. Paul was seemingly the most unlikely of candidates for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So if, you, if you've read Philippians before, you know that in Philippians 3, Paul kind of gives his resume. Um, he, he kind of is recalling how he viewed himself before Christ. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, he was blameless. He was zealous because he persecuted the church. So Paul essentially was this like Jewish celebrity 
in his day. And not only was he this pharisaical Jew, but he was also actively persecuting the body of Christ to the point where he was actually responsible for the death of many Christians. And so he's a murderer of God's people on top of being this pharisaical Jew. But not only that, since he was a pharisaical Jew, he more than likely despised the Gentiles. He more than likely was holding them in very low regard. But these were the very people that God called him to take the gospel to. So we see that all these odds were stacked against Paul for being some type of missionary to the Gentiles. But we see that only by the grace of God, only by God's completely unmerited favor, was Paul saved and rescued. Paul, or, uh, Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. And, and Paul was actually on his way to go kill more Christians. So Jesus meets him on the road in this blinding light. He calls him to repentance and to trust and then commissions him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And I think this is kind of a side point, but I think God is much more gracious than we actually think he is. If that were to happen today, if somebody like Paul, who was a killer of Christians, all of a sudden comes onto the scene and is like, no, God saved me. We'd be like, heck no. <laughs> no, you were, I just saw you kill my friend Jimmy down the road who was a Christian. But we, we, under, we have to understand that God is much more gracious than we think he is. That in his, his grace and his power is much greater than we think it is. And Paul kind of encapsulates this, this transformation in a couple verses in Galatians 1, 15 through 16. And it should be on the screen. Paul writes, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So just as Paul is commissioned by God's grace, we are as well. Right? By God's grace, we are not only called and saved into this relationship, but we are actually commissioned to take the gospel we have been entrusted with to the nations as ambassadors for Christ, right? to, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to, to our family members, and even to our unbelieving friends. So we, like Paul, are commissioned by God's grace, as it suggests in the text. But we also see something interesting in verses uh, 15 and 16. We see that Paul's priestly offering is accepted by grace. So let's read verses 15 and 16. He says, Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And this word minister is unlike any word Paul has used before to describe himself. Throughout his letters and throughout Romans, Paul described himself as a servant of Christ or a doulos of Christ. Or, or a slave of Christ. 
And he even describes himself as the where we get the word deacon from. He called himself a deacon of Christ. But here he uses a different word. So the word Paul uses here for minister is actually the same root word from which we derive the word liturgy. So he, he's saying that he's a liturgian of Christ, a liturgy of Christ. And in the language of the New Testament, this word means something along the lines of one engaged in administrative or cultic service. If you think about it, we do liturgy every week. At the end of the service, we all join together in a, in a liturgical response of the Great Commission. So Paul is describing himself as this liturgian or liturgy of Christ. And he just specifically describes it as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God. So the picture Paul is wanting to paint here is that of a Hebrew priest standing in the presence of God in the temple of God performing these sacred rituals and worship unto God. And he describes his missionary work as this priest in the temple offering up sacrifices. So Paul sees himself as a priest, not offering up animal or food offerings, but offering up the Gentiles themselves. Notice, though, Paul makes sure to emphasize God's grace all the more. His offering up of the Gentiles is acceptable to God. It's this pleasing aroma, not due to anything Paul has done, not due to his sanctifying work, but God's. He says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. And how are they acceptable? Because they are sanctified by this Holy Spirit. And I think uh, R. Kent Hughes describes it much better than I could. And this quote will be on your screen. He writes, Though he is involved in the dusty, mundane business of traveling the ancient world on foot, suffering from exposure and threats and beatings and rejection, in his heart of hearts he sees himself in priestly garb in the temple, lifting up the souls of men that then ascend as a sweet-smelling fragrance to Christ. Paul understood that his life was this living sacrifice to God, as he wrote in Romans 12.1. And he also saw that his missionary work was done as a liturgy, as worship unto God. And he offered up living sacrifices. He offered up these Gentiles as a priest would offer his sacrifices to God in the temple. So what this text shows us is that the whole of our Christian life hinges upon the grace of God. Not just our salvation, not just our sanctification, but even including the ministry that we do. That we are in service to believers and non-believers alike and in sharing the good news of, of God to non-believers and, and them being sanctified and saved, that that is not anything we've done, but it's actually an offering of worship that God accepts because it, they are sanctified by his grace. Amen. So Paul's ministry is characterized by God's grace. But we also, as we move on, we see that Paul's ministry is also empowered by Jesus Christ. It's empowered by Jesus Christ. And this is in verses 17 through 21. He writes, 
In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak. I will not dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody, someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul kind of laser focuses on the Spirit's power in his own ministry. The Holy Spirit empowered Paul to preach the gospel and also to kind of accompany his words to also perform these various miracles and signs and wonders, both of which are pointing to the source of salvation and power, right? God himself. And when we, I think we tend to kind of think about miracles and signs and wonders only in the strict sense of, of, of the context of making uh, the blind see or making the deaf hear or making the lame walk. Or when we read scripture, we see how people are casting out demons. And, and these things Paul actually did. But I think we can miss something pretty vital from Paul's ministry, which is applicable for our own ministry, if we limit signs and wonders just to those more miraculous signs. Let's read verse 18 again. He writes, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So what is one of the signs and testimonies to God's grace and his power in this verse? It's the fact that Gentiles were now followers of Christ. The fact that their souls were saved from the grip of Satan. And the Gentiles that, that Paul had bore witness to in these regions were essentially these walking trophies of God's power and God's love. Not just these many miracles that other people saw and, and, and pointed to the source of Christ, but also the miracle of salvation to the Gentiles. So Paul does not... Uh, he goes on to not try to puff himself up in any way here. And if, if you think about it, if you think about Paul's life and all that he accomplished, in the world's eyes, he would have a lot of reason to boast. Right? The, graves, the greatest missionary who ever lived. The one who led thousands upon thousands to the throne of grace. The one who survived shipwrecks, stonings, and beatings. And the one whom God specifically appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He has all these credentials. But to whom does he give all honor and all glory and all praise? To God alone. So Paul leaves no room to boast in himself. Because he realizes that his ministry is not only commissioned by God's grace. But it's also empowered by God's spirit. He understands that this, this ministry he has to the Gentiles is primarily God's ministry. And I think something that at least I tend to do, I can't speak for, for the people in here, but that I tend to do 
is underestimate the power of the Spirit in my own personal experiences in ministry. As if the ability to save or sanctify is somehow up to me. And I'm not sure if anybody else can relate to that, but it seems as if Paul had no sense of confidence in his own flesh or in his own self. But he had confidence in the fact that this is primarily God's ministry, first and foremost, and that God will minister to the hearts of others through him as Paul submits himself to God. So Paul goes on and he writes that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And uh, we we don't really have a concept for these locations, um, but these are the regions in which he had been preaching the gospel. Um, In in other words, Paul had shared the gospel and he had established these churches in all the eastern Mediterranean and the eastern Mediterranean is actually about a span of 1,400 miles. So Paul has kind of preached the gospel. He has made disciples, but he has also raised up leaders and established, established churches. And now he was making plans to travel west. So he understood the mission that God had given him. Right? He knew that God desired for him to be this pioneer, kind of blazing the trails. You can imagine Paul kind of, when, when you're starting to make a trail, you kind of get a machete and cut through all the, the, the small trees and branches when you're, when, he's, when you're blazing the trail. And in this way, Paul has his machete and he is kind of chopping through. He is, he is being the pioneer, taking the gospel to the regions that had never heard it before. And this ministry was fulfilled in the sense that Paul had shared the gospel, he had planted churches, and he had raised up leaders. And now that those gospel-centered churches were now thriving, he knew that it was time to start to look elsewhere. He knew that his specific call by God was not to, to kind of build off the foundations, as he writes, build off the foundations of the churches that were already there. And thus he fulfilled the prophecy quoted from Isaiah 52, 15, which says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So kind of some self-reflection before we move on. Do you view yourself in the same light Paul did? Right? As a minister of Jesus Christ, both, both to the church, but also to the world who doesn't believe. And when I say minister, I don't mean one who holds a specific office in the church. The truth is that we are all ministers of Christ. We are all ministers of Christ as we bear witness to the gospel and serve others where we are planted. So Paul, as well as you and I, are not only called and commissioned by God's grace, but we are also empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the nations. So like any good visionary, um, Paul knew he had to make some plans as to where he would go and share the gospel next. So in in the second half of our passage, we get to see some of these plans that Paul made. So if you would, turn with me to uh, verses 22 through 29. Paul writes, This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. 
But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, talking to the Roman church, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution uh, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So the third point we see today is that Paul's ministry includes the ministries of other saints. His ministry includes the ministries of other saints. And we see a a kind of a variety of ministries and churches in action in these verses, don't we? First, we see Paul's ministry, which we've been reading about. And how Paul's intentions were now to start to turn west, to to make the trek onward to Spain. And on his way to Spain, Rome is actually on the way, and uh, he desired to stop by the Roman church and and be helped by them. And it was almost like this sort of of checkpoint. He, he, He even puts it, he wants to be refreshed by them as he is journeying on. Uh, But before that could take place, he actually planned on making a trip back to Jerusalem in order that he could provide for for the saints there who were in poverty. And I actually have a handy dandy map that'll be on the screen. Um to help us better understand the weight of what Paul is saying. Because we, we, it's hard for us to have a, a, a mind wrapped around all these different locations. So I have this map to, to help us. So you can imagine Paul in this situation. right? He so badly desired to travel northwest from Achaia. And Achaia was actually in the middle region right here of, of Corinth. So Corinth was actually in this greater region called Achaia. And if you look up northwest, you see Rome. And beyond Rome is actually Spain. So Paul was planning to venture that way onward to Spain and stop at Rome. Um, But instead of of going to Spain and going northwest, what what does Paul do? He hears about the needs of the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And he, he starts to collect these proceeds from the region he's in. Then he travels over 1,000 miles southeast in the complete opposite direction to go to Jerusalem. And right, remember, he couldn't just hop in his car. Right? He couldn't hop in his Ford Fiesta and kind of travel around this little cape. But he was largely uh, traveling by foot or by ship. So to put it into perspective, a th- over a little over a thousand miles is the same distance from Chattanooga to Denver, Colorado, on foot and by ship. So talk about someone who loved God and his people. And I think there's something else that's really important to understand. It's that this letter was not written in a vacuum, right? Paul didn't write this letter in no context. Everything that's ever been written is written in some sort of context. So Paul wrote from a specific place during a specific time to a specific people with a specific purpose. 
And it's easy to forget that sometimes when reading the Bible, especially when we're reading Romans and kind of dealing with these really high and lofty thoughts. But this helps us realize something important, namely that Paul needed help. Right? He couldn't be everywhere all the time, but just like any other human, he is bound by space and time. Right? Paul might have been the greatest missionary to ever lived, but he was human, like you and I. But he was a human that understood his own limits, and he realizes that he needed help. That he needed help not just from God, but God's people. And here we can start to begin and see some of the roles of the local church at the time of Paul, which is actually applicable for now. First, we see the Roman church's ministry in verse 24. So the, the church at Antioch was Paul's home base in his sending church. And Paul is writing to Rome and asking them that they be kind of this, this home base for him, this checkpoint as he goes on. And uh, something that I was thinking about in prep was that one of the wonderful opportunities that we have here at Ridgedale is the sending and supporting of our missionaries, right? If you remember back, if you were here in November, you got to see the RCs, the RC family, be commissioned out to go to Venezuela. Um, and, and a few years ago, or a number of years ago, we got to see the Balta family, who is now in Dublin, Ireland, uh, who planted a church and um, witnessing the gospel in lost regions. So Paul was looking to the local church in Rome for support as he journeyed on. And then we see the Achaian and Macedonian ministries. The Achaian and Macedonian churches were able to serve not only Paul as he journeyed on, but also to serve the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul went as far to say that they were obligated to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church since they were both united in Christ, since they were both sharing of the spiritual blessings of eternal life. So what we've seen so far is that Paul's ministry is characterized by grace, is that Paul's ministry is empowered by Christ. His ministry includes the ministry of other saints, but also, lastly, that Paul's ministry is sustained through prayer. It is sustained through prayer. And we see this in Romans uh, 15, 30 through 33. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. First, we see Paul's urgent request for prayer. His urgent request for prayer. He appeals to the Roman church to pray. And what are the two things and uh, two people that he highlights? He appeals to them by the lordship of Christ and the love of the Spirit for believers. So he, he, he says, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, pray to God earnestly on my behalf. Something that Paul understood is that he knew the God to whom he was praying. He knew that Jesus had final authority over all things 
And he knew that the Spirit was applying the love of God into the hearts of believers. And should that not incentivize us to pray all the more earnestly as well? So Paul describes this communal prayer as striving together in prayer. Striving together in prayer. And in the language of the New Testament, this word literally means agonizing together. Agonizing together. Have you ever agonized over something? right, To the point where it basically consumes you. Paul is essentially asking the Roman church and urging, not even asking, he's, he's exhorting and urging for them to be consumed by prayer in these needs. It's this idea of wrestling and fighting in prayer. Prayer with a deep sense of urgency to strive with intensity and hope because they knew to whom they were praying. They were praying to the Lord Jesus Christ who has authority over all things and in the power of the Spirit who loves them. And he requests two things. He requests that they will be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that he, he requests that they would be that their sacrifices and service would be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. So first of all, Paul knew of the great struggle ahead in facing the Jews and the authorities there. Entering into Jerusalem might actually cost Paul his life. So he resolves to pray, and he urges the Romans to do so as well. But then he goes on to pray that their, his service would be acceptable to the saints. And at this point in time, certain members of the church of Jerusalem were still holding fast and adhering wholly to the law of Moses and to the requirement of circumcision uh, to be welcomed into the community of God. And because of this, Paul knew that the Jerusalem church might not be so willing to accept his service to the saints. But Paul nevertheless presses on and asks for prayer. And the prayer for deliverance and acceptance was not purposeless. It wasn't just for the sake of staying alive another day, but he was not afraid to die for the cause of Christ. So what was his purpose? His purpose to stay alive was to then extend the gospel. Paul had a hunger to share the good news. And it's funny because we kind of see these prayers made and then Paul goes on and writes the rest of his letter. But in other areas of Scripture, we can see that this prayer was actually answered. Right? In, in Acts 21 through 24, Paul is actually delivered from the unbelieving Jews. He is then taken to Rome to be imprisoned, but also that the offering he brought to the Gentiles was in the end received. So God answered their earnest prayers. Paul's ministry was sustained by prayer to the God of peace, in God's will, and by God's power. And one thing we as a church can always do without fail is earnestly pray for those on the front lines of mission. Even if we aren't able to even financially support or actually go on mission, we can pray. And the reason we pray is because we believe that prayer does things to, to be Simple and blunt. Prayer does things. So kind of to summarize all these points together, Paul's ministry was characterized by God's grace. It was empowered by God's spirit. 
It was supported by God's people and sustained by prayer to God. So you might be thinking, all this is great, but how do we apply this to our lives? Right? What are we to do now? Because the, the truth is that most of us are not going to go on these grand missionary journeys like Paul. The, these Paul-like missionary journeys. But the truth is that all of us are called to minister where we are with the resources that God has given us. Just like the Roman church did in helping Paul. Just like the, regions, uh, the churches in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia who were sending support back to the Jerusalem church. So how did these churches live missionally? By sending and supporting missionaries. By sharing the gospel where they were planted. By making disciples. And by serving and building up believers and non-believers alike. So for us, as people of the Great Commission, this Great Commission that we say at the end of every week, each and every one of us is called to make disciples who then make disciples. And with the goal that we may be priests and ministers of the gospel of God, offering up the very ones that God himself has sanctified and made holy. So for believers, um, I'd like to leave you with a few questions for you to kind of ponder and reflect on, and they'll be on the screen. First question is, how are you fulfilling the Great Commission? How are you fulfilling the Great Commission? Secondly, when was the last time you shared the gospel to a, a fellow student, to a coworker, to a family member, are you currently discipling or being discipled by anyone? If not, I would highly encourage you to enter into a discipleship relationship, whether that be you discipling others or someone discipling you. And lastly, are you praying for those in the missional trenches? But if you are here and you don't believe in Christ, if you haven't um, trusted in Christ for your salvation, um, we urge you and implore you to do so today. Jesus Christ, who existed from all eternity, came down from heaven to bear the wrath of God meant for us on the cross and rise again from the dead in order that we may now trust in him for eternal life and be saved. So know that God has been patient and merciful to you to this day bearing with your sins in order that his kindness would lead you to repentance. So there is no greater news than this. This is the gospel that Paul was not ashamed of, and neither are we. So let's turn to Christ uh, and live today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you um, for your gospel that it has pierced our hearts and our minds. It has renewed us and sanctified us. Um, but Lord, I pray that the gospel would not just reach a dead end when it reaches us, uh, but Lord, that it would go through us on someone else. And Lord, that we would seek these opportunities and ways to live missionally, to live as a disciple, um, but also, Lord, I thank you for those who are on the front lines of mission 
even those whom we have sent uh, internationally and even within our own nation, Lord. And um, we ask that you would strengthen them and empower them, that you would guide them to go with gospel boldness and declare the good news um, and raise up uh, disciples who then go and make disciples. Lord, uh, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. It's your name I pray.